0: At writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Peyton Sinclair wants nothing more than to escape her life as a diner waitress and attend the best culinary school in the country. Top Teen Chef, Food TV's new show that pairs reality TV drama with a fast paced culinary competition, is more than just her ticket out of her small North Florida town. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime chance to make her dreams come true, and Peyton is determined to prove to herself and the world that where you're born does not determine where you can go. However, once on the show, Peyton quickly discovers that there is more to the competition than just a well-seasoned dish. As things start to heat up on and off set, Peyton will have to prove to the judges that she deserves to win while trying to untangle what is real and what's scripted in order to keep her dreams off the chopping block. Where There's a Whisk by Sarah J. Schmidt releases October 12th.
1: We're here with Laurel K. Hamilton, the best-selling author of, gosh, let's see, how many books at this point? Well, uh, I'm
2: writing my 41st, so... So forty novels.
1: Wow, that is that is seriously impressive. I'm on twelve, and that feels good, so I can't imagine forty.
2: My goal is to have the same amount in one series that
1: the newer Wolf books by
2: Rex Stout, which is seventy uh, something. Your
1: newest series, is coming out for the first time in 20 years a new series which begins with A Terrible Fall of Angels is the title of the first one. It deals with angels and demons and angelology which just draws me in immediately because I am a huge fan of angelology and just kind of got pulled into that when I was in college actually. So if you'd like to talk a little bit about the new series, and about the new book, A Terrible Fall of Angels.
2: A Terrible Fall of Angels is set in modern America. It's all over the world, but this book is set in America. The main character is detectable Zaniel Hablock, who is a member of the Metaphysical Coordination Unit, also known as the Heaven and Hell Squad. If you have a crime that has angelic or demonic overtones, that's who you want to call, especially Zaniel. Daniel is an angel speaker. He was trained at the College of Angels to be able to communicate with the highest order of angels. Not everybody can train up with the highest order of angels and survive intact. He was he was one of their shining stars as a pupil, but something tragic happened and he felt he could no longer serve there. He left and at age 20 and he'd lived there since he was seven. It's like a cloistered order. So he left, could speak with angels and do all sorts of wonderful mystical things, but he'd never seen a computer, didn't know how to fill out a job application. (laughs) So he's six foot three, walks past a recruiter station for the army, and the recruiter goes, Young man, may I speak with you? So he joined the army, did a tour there, and now he is a police detective. But he can still speak with angels because this is a world where everyone knows that heaven and hell have a treaty. They have agreed not to do Armageddon and destroy the world. But there are rules. How many demons can come up? How much tormenting can they do? There are ways both sides can break the treaty, but it's primarily on hell's shoulders what will break the treaty and what will not. And if the treaty is broken, then literally the end of the world happens. So the Metaphysical Coordination Unit and other units like it around the world helped keep this from happening. But Zaniel is the only angel speaker to be fully trained and to leave voluntarily to go out in the larger world. That old saying, you don't know you're in a cult until you leave. Well, Xaniel didn't realize that the College of Angels really is a cult, or that's how other people see it. There's been a tell-all documentary on people trying to get their children back. It's very interesting to have him be my eyes on the world. One of the other detectives, she says, you say things like you're an old, old fogey, like you should be somebody's grandpa. He says, well, I was raised with people saying things like that because working with the angels lengthens your life. So some of the people teaching have been up there for a very long time and nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it much at the school. You're not supposed to talk about it outside the school. That Dealing with the angels and living at the College of Angels actually lengthens your lifetime a great deal. So if you look at the Old Testament, you have several people that are living over hundred that that's mentioned more than once.
1: And so what brought you to this idea of working specifically with angels and demons, because you've obviously worked in the, those areas before in the realm of the, uh, the paranormal and the urban fantastical elements. Uh, why this time angels and demons specifically? You
2: know, I've been asked that and I don't have a good answer because Literally, the idea for this book, I was, to my knowledge, I was not reading, watching, or studying on angels. I had like one book, one or two books on it, but it wasn't an area of study. I'm not into angelology. I wasn't raised Christian or any of the other religions of the book. I really didn't have a background in it. But suddenly, out of nowhere, almost 10 years ago, a line came to me. There were angel feathers in the dead woman's bed. I thought, wow, that's a great first line. So I wrote it down on a sticky note and I put it up on my wall in my office. And there it's set. What I find is that if I put something, a note, and put it on a piece of paper and I put it in a file, if I don't periodically go through the files, I forget about it. But if I put it up on my wall where I pass by it every day, if I pass by it too much, I don't see it anymore. So you have to move it around a little (laughs) to make sure every once in a while that it refreshes. But this one. I kept coming back to it. I thought it was a short story. In 2014, I was still actively writing the Mary Gentry series and the Anita Blake series, but this idea wouldn't leave me alone. So I thought, you know what? I'll sit down. I'll write it. Maybe it's a short story. I can get it out of my mind, and the creative logjam will be undone. I almost wrote the first chapter at one setting, and I thought, this is a book. Not only this is a book, it's a series. And I thought, I cannot do three series at once. No! I cannot do it. Please! So I put it in a file. And then I wrote the ninth Mary Gentry book, A Shiver of Light. And then in 2020, I picked it back up. I thought, I'm finally ready. I'd done Sucker Punch, which was uh, the 27th Anita Blake novel. Finished that up. I thought, now I can go to it. And then 2020 happened. And, And I've never had a book so interrupted, partly because of everything that was happening in the world, partly because I sent Sucker Punch off to be edited just as lockdown happened. And my editor and everybody at my publishing house was barred from their their building. Everything changed. The edits took longer, so it interrupted the book and I had to put it aside for A Terrible Fall of Angels. And then I went back to it. And then I had this great idea, because one of the things all the fans told me is one of the things that was helping them through lockdown was reading my books. It gave them a refuge. It gave them a place to be when they couldn't leave yeah. where yeah. they were. I contacted my editor and, and said, can I do an extra book, like a small book, like Micah or Jason? And she says, well, can you? Can you do that and then meet your other deadlines? I said, well, I think I can. That's how we got Raphael. Unfortunately, or fortunately, Raphael ended up being long enough it could have been a main book. It was not short like Jason and Micah the way I was hoping it would be. I loved Raphael. I loved the world building with the were-rats and Raphael's been a character from the beginning. He deserved a, a bigger book. It was great. But again, delays. Went back to Terrible Fall of Angel then had to stop for edits on Raphael finally sat down with it. The world is still in chaos. And I believe that all the stops and starts and all the delays helped make this book a much lighter book. Mm -hmm. It's a dark book. I mean, you have demons and you fight demons and everything, but you also have the angels and the angels are very present. And positive magic, not just the angels, but positive magic in Wiccan, you have spirit guides and you have totems and you have all this positive spiritual help that is around all of us, and it's this idea that that we are not alone, we are not isolated. There's help at hand, and that you know, deity, the universe, they they really do want us to be happy and to to feel positive, and to be uplifted instead of down with this heaviness that we all seem to be fighting against lately.
1: Very, very true. I know that a lot of writers really struggled over COVID. I think I discovered that when I am moving out in the world and interacting with people, I'm drawing energy from them. And when I come back to sit down, that energy is coming back out in the form of my writing. And when I couldn't go out and move among people and draw energy I would sit down in front of my laptop already drained, uh, unable to produce something. Motivation wasn't necessarily a problem. I, I would just literally sit down and be like, I am too tired to do this.
2: I think that a lot of us, even those of the introverts, have found that that little exchange of just going out and doing errands and exchanging with real people really is more of a social exchange than we thought it was. I didn't have any trouble writing at the beginning, but then I had just finished, like I said, book 27, and I wrote book 28, and this is a series I've been writing for for decades, so that helped. But then in writing a Terrible Fall of Angels, you know, the impetus of the deadline helped light a fire under me, and also exploring a new world was both very, much harder than I remembered it, and also it's energizing at the same time that it's hard. And I was doing pretty well. I was giving people extra stories, and I wanted to do that. And I was reaching out to people through my writing. And I also edited my first anthology during all of this, Fantastic Hope, with my co-editor, uh, William McCaskey. And, you know, there's an original Anita Blake story in it, and there's a lot of like, great stories. And boy, did we need an anthology of hopeful stories. And then it's now. Now I'm having more trouble. I'm writing the next Anita Blake novel, book 29. I've never had so much trouble writing Anita in my entire life. I thought we'd be out by now, you know? I thought we'd be back to some semblance of normality. And now I am drained. Now, because all the things I normally do between books, I haven't been able to do. I usually go and visit certain friends that I haven't been able to because of where they are. I go to the ocean and I was able to go briefly, but then, well, where I was, it was like, get out before the airports close. It, was, it wasn't that bad, but it felt that bad. It felt that kind of urgency. As much as I love my house, my office, and my beautiful garden and yard, and the, may I just say the garden and the, the water garden has been a godsend, because I'm beginning to understand why people had walled gardens and spent so much time with it. Because most people for most of history, if you traveled 20 yards miles away from home that was a long way your garden really was a refuge a place where you could go and relax
1: yes Um, and i've always felt that way about my own my own home i live in ohio i live in the middle of nowhere i just put a deck on before COVID hit have a good place for a hammock and i have a pond and i have all these wonderful little nooks and crannies all around my property Where I can kind of go to recharge, but when I can't leave my property, (laughs) it starts to all look the same and feel like you were saying when you walk past something that you see every day, you don't see it anymore. I love my home, I love where I'm from, I love living in the middle of nowhere, but I had already experienced true isolation by choice. And mm-hmm. when it became enforced isolation, I haven't been on a plane since March of 2020.
0: It's mm-hmm. hard.
1: I'm used to traveling a lot, traveling for school visits and library visits and talks and speeches and keynotes. And that that's all gone. And that has yep. really showed me how much of an extrovert I actually am.
2: Under normal circumstances for a terrible fall of angels, I would have been traveling all across the country. Yep. But I made the choice. They'd have let me, but I made the choice. I love my fans. They are so devoted. I've had people come straight from the hospital after abdominal surgery. One woman was in labor and she insisted on coming. And oh you know, my god! I have fans that I know are immunocompromised. I have fans yeah. that I know are ill. I'm not going to tempt them. I am not going to tempt them to a large group gathering. Yeah. In under these circumstances, I just I made the call for safety and caution for everybody that I would meet, not just for me. We tried to go out to theaters as much as we can because I'm afraid they're not gonna make it. And I love going to the movie theater, the whole shebang. I love getting popcorn and soda and sitting there in the, in the space. I don't care how big my big screen is. Just like we try, you know, get out and support our local restaurants. We were doing takeaway during
1: lockdowns. I had a book come out right at the beginning of March in 2020. And I was supposed to be gone the entire month of March and like half of April. I was not going to be home. And of course, that all got canceled. Good reason. We didn't really know what all was going on at the beginning. It was just like having your candle blown out. I was like, oh, came home and kind of tried to launch a book from home, which it did fine. I think. The reading has really come back. I think a lot of people have rediscovered reading. A yep. lot of people that I know are usually big readers actually had trouble reading during COVID. I did too.
2: I have trouble reading for a lot of reasons. If I'm in the middle of writing a book or editing, oh my God, if I'm editing a book, if that's where I'm at, I can't read because I edit. Yeah. I edit everybody's books. and I'm going, well, that I'd have done that differently. I can't get out of my editor mode to be able to read. If I'm writing a book, I have to be careful because I would rather read what I'm writing so it's hard to settle, or I don't want to get up from my computer and read exactly the same kind of thing I'm writing. Every book I write pretty much is genuinely a mystery, genuinely horror, genuinely Mm. fantasy. It is genuinely magic. It is genuinely all these things. Whereas I write all my favorite genres, so it's like, what's left to read? I'm trying to get back to finding fantasy that is different enough from what I write that I can read it without feeling like it's a busman's holiday.
0: Are you bored of TV? Like drugs but can't afford them? Still paying alimony? Read How to See a Man About a Dog, Collected Writings. It's surreal. It's strange. It's How to See a Man About a Dog by Samuel Knox. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. How to See a Man About a Dog ebook is available on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Print copies are available on Amazon, Alibris, and more. How to See a Man About a Dog by Samuel Knox.
1: I have a Dalmatian who is very high maintenance and I love him very much, but he has to have Gus. a run every morning. Yes. Mr. Gus. <laughs> <laughs> I never used to be a runner. I started running during the shutdown because I knew it would oh. get bad if I didn't. So congratulations. Um, thank you. It was, it was a smart move. It was a good move. I was, I'm lucky enough to live isolated. So I, I can, and it's not a problem for anyone, but.
2: I've wanted a Dalmatian since I was 12. I love the Disney cartoon, but it is so much better the book. I oh, read yeah. Dodie Smith's 101 Dalmatians 20 plus times, I'm not joking, in the mm-hmm. summer. One summer <sighs> when I was when I was 12. I wanted a Dalmatian from that time, but I did my research. I'm not a runner. I'm not a jogger. And it's over 100 degrees here. And we're on pavement. It's too hot for the dog to run on. I am not a good owner for a Dalmatian. I know that. I have to accept that. It, the dog would be miserable And in the right hands, I believe every breed in the right hands, in the right family, is a great dog. Mm -hmm. But so many people, they treat the choice of a family member that is going to be with you hopefully for at least 15 years, they Mm -hmm. treat it with less concern, less research, less thought than they do picking out an outfit. It's pretty. I want the pretty one.
1: Yeah, I know. all, All puppies are cute. Oh, they are. They're all adorable. I had done the research too. And I had decided I did not want a Dalmatian. Well, I didn't even want a puppy. I was like, I'm adopting an adult from the pound. All my dogs have been pound dogs before. Well, this was during COVID. And everybody had gone and adopted a dog. And and literally the only dogs left were like, has killed will kill again like that was all. was nobody else and i actually tried i brought a dog home and it, one of my cats attempted to jump out of a closed second story window it was just like no i'm i'm just doing it i'm leaving if i any way i can <sighs> and then my sister was she was buying pigs from a farm family in the next county over and they were like we also have free kittens and dalmatian puppies <laughs> And my sister sent me pictures of the puppies and I was like, oh God, I don't think I can do it. I got him at eight weeks and we started running at eight weeks and he is so dang smart when we're running and he runs at my right side. And when a car comes, he breaks his stride and goes single file behind me. And then wow. comes back around and goes up to the right and, like, never clips my heels. Never, I don't have to break stride at all. Wow. That's impressive. He's so smart. I always say wonderful things about Gus. Okay. I, I love
2: my Japanese chins, but they are never really yes. jogging companions. I keep thinking maybe adopting an older Dalmatian, but we have small dogs and we have cats. And yep. some Dalmatians can have a very high prey drive we rescued one of our cats when she was at least six and the vet thinks she may have been 10. So mm-hmm. she's getting up there and I'm not going to bring anything into the house that could potentially yeah. be dangerous for her. She's our grizzly bear. Griselda's her name, but she has a really deep throaty purr. Had she not mm-hmm. answered to her name, I wanted to name her Eartha Kitty. because <laughs> She has this great throaty torch singer purr, but she answered to her name.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you still are interested in a Dalmatian at some point, I can tell you that Mr. Gus is is very laid back. Yesterday, I watched him run down uh, like a bird that wasn't quite flying yet, and, and it couldn't take off, but then it's like he caught up to it. He was just like, Mom, there's, there's a thing over here. He was not going to put it in his mouth. Hey, Mom, I found <laughs> a thing. Like, there's no violence in this animal. There's none. You just never know though. Prey drive is
2: a natural thing. You can work around it and train around it, but how much prey drive an animal has, that's natural. So you lucked out.
1: Yep, I did. He is a perfect boy and
2: he knows it. He's looking at me right now. When I say the phrase perfect boy, he's just like, yep, that's me. Well, you and Gus are meant for each other. Now he's been raised with you not traveling. It's going to be really hard on him. It's
0: going
1: to be super, super hard. I was actually gone two weekends ago. I had a Comic Con. And then this past weekend, I spoke at a library conference. So I I was gone the past two weekends. And he was devastated. But he stays with my mom. He has a, a second home. He has second and third homes, actually. So he does okay. Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find the book, A Terrible Fall of Angels? Well, A Terrible Fall of Angels is available pretty much everywhere. My
2: website, laurelkhamilton.com, and I am official underscore LK Hamilton for um, Instagram. Twitter, I'm LK Hamilton. L-K-H underscore official is also for TikTok. I'm pretty active online. Uh, you know, with the lockdown and everything, online is now part of the job. It's like the business has changed, and I really think this is going to be a permanent change. Terrible Fall of Angels is is out everywhere, bookstores and online. I'm getting a lot of love from, from fans and new fans. And a lot of people said they were intimidated because they needed like. Uh, series was like 28 novels, it was so long, so big. They're saying, oh, thank you for starting a new one. It's like, okay, trust me, the water's fine. Come on in.
0: Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.